Eddie Jones, we're in the bowels of Coogee Oval Ranwick dressing rooms, the Galloping Greens. Is this you? Uh, some good memories here, mate. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic club and you know, it's nice to come back here. I'm looking at some of the pictures around here. There were some mon you know, iconic players that played for this club. It's always good to play with good players, mate. When we played, like we had 10 Wallabies in the team, so it was, it was a pretty handy team. Was that the golden era of club rugby, do you think, in Australia? Before the game went professional, the club rugby was, was the foundation of, and it's still the foundation, but the Wallaby players that play with the club players and you'd have crowds down here of four or 5,000 wanting to see the stars. Do you remember you, your first introduction to rugby, where you first followed it or first played it? We played league at, at school, you know, we went to La Perouse Public, uh, I played with the three Ellers, and so we were a pretty handy team. We played league all the way through, played for La Perouse on the, on the weekend, and then we went to Matchville High and they said you had to play rugby, um, because they didn't have any league, so... That was the first introduction. I can remember thinking the training was terrible, like compared to rugby league training, because you had to do all this organisational stuff. And at that time, did you fall in love with rugby? I mean, was it something that was instant or did it grow on you? Uh, it grew on me and we had a fantastic coach in Jeff Mould who was just enthusiastic and wanted us to play a different style of game. We played really flat to the line, short passes, lot of movement so it was fun to play and fun to practice and and he was so enthusiastic and you know when you've got a, a coach at that age who's so enthusiastic you tend to fall in love with the game. Coaches are, are influential on kids like that aren't they? Massively influential. When when did you decide that you were going to be a coach? Oh when I got dropped as a player. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Randwick first grade hooker and New South Wales hooker and Bob Dwyer, who coached at Randwick, uh, was the Australian coach, and he picked Phil Kearns out of second grade, who went on to play 70 tests and was a Wallaby great, so it wasn't a bad selection. But then, so I dropped down to second grade, and, and the second grade coach, who I was a good mate, who said, you can do some coaching here. So I ended up doing a bit of coaching. We won the comp, and I thought, oh, I might give this a go now. So it's a common question I get asked, what did I prefer, playing or coaching or administrating? Um, I think first and foremost, we're all players. That's what we love the most. Yeah, 100%. There's nothing like playing, mate. But if you can't play, coach, and if you can't coach, administer. Well, it's a way to extend <laughs> your career, isn't it? I think, I think too, as players, like um, when we get to the back end of it and our body can't do it anymore, that's when we've sort of accumulated the knowledge and the relationships and the communication skills to sort of think that we can make a difference as coaches. Yeah, I, I, I reckon the interesting thing about that, Gus, is you see a lot of the the players who become coaches that probably weren't the best players and probably towards the back end of their career they spent a lot of time thinking about the game then become quite good coaches. Like very rarely in rugby are the, the brilliant, talented players, they very rarely turn into good coaches. What's, that, what's your theory on that? Because I don't think they've had to think about the game enough because they've just done it. Like the best players just do it. Because the elite players are so good, aren't they? Like they're just they're a cut above everyone else. I, I say that 99% of us are average and then you've got this other lot that are just super. And, it, and it's right, even in our case, some of the greatest players of all time didn't make great coaches. And I kind of put it down to, I don't think they know what the average player feels or how they think, you know, just, just the anxiety and the confidence and the, you know, feeling part of the team where the champion player is just there doing it on his own, isn't he? I mean, they're a different breed. 
definitely a different breed. But I reckon the other part of that is if you're lucky enough as a player to play with some great players, and I was lucky enough to play with some great players, you know what players are capable of doing. So you set your standards at, a, at, at the level that those good players can do it. Um, because I've seen coaches come in that set their level too low. Yeah. So is there a difference between coaching the champion standout player, who might be a little bit different, to coaching the average player who's just trying to stay in part of the team and, and play a role? Well, I think the process is always the same. You're trying to find out you know, for that player what's going, to, what's going to get a bit more out of them. Um, but generally, the really champion players, I've found, needed less coaching and more guidance, whereas with the, the average player, you've got to do a bit more directing of them to where they've got to go. Sometimes I said it was uh, to keep the average player out of the way of the good player. <laughs> That's probably fair enough. <laughs> I remember years ago when you were coaching the Brumbies, and we spoke at various times, and I think you might have been even coaching the Wallabies at that time. You were talking about the development of um, international class and super rugby class players. And you said that if rugby needed someone to play super, super rugby today, you'd nearly have to go and recruit them from rugby league, that the pathways for rugby weren't sufficient enough to get them through there. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Is it still the same today or is it improving? Uh, it's still the same, mate. Um, yeah, I think the clubs have still remained strong as we spoke about, but there hasn't been that evolution to, to identify talent and bring that talent through. And that's why rugby league's you know, killing rugby at that, at that age group at the moment. Why is it still like that then? That's, that's the $64 question. I think, you know, at some stage, someone strategic's got to come in and say, right, enough's enough, and this is what we need to do. And, it, and as you know, it always costs money, and you've got to make that, that sacrifice to spend that money to get, get the game right in 10 years' time. See, in rugby league, um, the money is made by the club football. It funds everything else. In rugby, it's the international football that makes the money. How much of that filters down into the right areas, do you think? Well, I think it, it filters down, but there's just not enough of it. Like, that's, that's the thing, there's not enough money to be made. And I think at some stage in rugby, there's going to be like a, a packer revolution where, where the game changes, a lot more money comes in, and that will help develop the... Th really? Develop the players, yeah, I think that'll happen at some stage. So it has to be revolution, not evolution? Yeah, yeah. You think? Yeah, 100%. Do you think it's your, now part of your charter as Australian Wallaby coach, or are you just worried about winning games? Oh, we just got to win games, mate. As you know, if you don't win games, you don't have any say. I mean, in all this time, you've, you've had some incredible journeys in rugby in different countries all around the world. I mean, I suppose that's moving and lifestyle and family and all that sort of thing. It's... Do they do it differently in other countries? Do they do it better or less than what we're doing it here in Australia? I think, mate, the process is always the same. The, the only difference is that there's cultural differences. Like, you know, coaching South Africa, I remember we were playing against, we were playing against England 2007, second round of the tournament. Half-time, we're 30-0 ahead. You know, the Australian side, you come in at 30-0, you want to put them to the sword. But South Africa... Give them the ball in the second half, let's practice our defence. What? Give them the ball, let's practice. So they ended up winning 36-0. No. And they were happy as Larry because they, they want to hit people, you know. So that's the difference. Uh, English like to be very well organised, you know, like a high level of organisation. So you find that the countries, the elements of the country's society affects the way the team plays. Yeah. 
What about Japan? Uh, Japan, well, they they had always copied other countries. It was funny because, you know, post-World post War II, they were innovators, but in rugby, they'd always copied other countries. So what we tried to do were, there was just develop their own style of play. For Japan? Yeah. Yeah, with their own sort of yeah. players. Yeah. Fast, quick. Yeah. You always struck me, I mean, watching from afar as... Um, more an innovator rather than a follower. I think I would like to think that that's what you prided yourself on. I think uh, when I knew you years ago, it was you, you were sort of the first to embrace technology and then professionalism and then staffing. You were very, very um, liberal in not only just people that knew the game of rugby, but even from other codes, getting them in as assistants or advisors and all that sort of thing as well. Is that still a part of your philosophy? Yeah, I still tried to do that. And I think the only time I've ever got into trouble is when I've I've started following. I think, yeah, you know, most of the leagues in the world, all the big leagues in the world, are copying. How can you run first if you follow? <laughs> if you're copying someone, how can you, how can you, you know, how can you run first? That's exactly right, mate. But I reckon that's like sometimes you get behind the wave, mm. and what you've got to do is make sure you get ahead of the wave. Of course, if you're going to innovate and be a little bit progressive, you're going to make mistakes, and there's going to be times where it's more difficult than others. How do you, how do you handle those parts of your coaching career? Well, I think, you know, it's always, when you're young, those failures tend to hurt you a little bit more. But as you get older, you realise that that failure is the most important learning opportunity for you. And, and if you come, if you get, if you learn from that opportunity and get, and particularly get a bit mentally stronger, you're a better coach following that. Same with players. So failure is a part of success? 100%. Right. Have there been times where you've doubted yourself? Have there been times where you've doubted the coaching philosophy that you've had? Uh, not really, mate. Um, you know, I always felt like uh, there's always another day coming and there's always another opportunity. And, yeah, you know, sometimes, you, as you know, you can coach really well and get beaten and sometimes you can coach badly and win. So you've got to be realistic about that. The other part is that sometimes you feel like you're never going to lose and then other times you can't feel where your next win's going to come from. <laughs> I've felt both of those. <laughs> you can get to some fairly dark places yeah. on that. And you don't feel as though you're coaching any different yeah. through, through either part of it. You know, like uh, some, of your, some of your losing periods are where you feel like you're coaching the strongest. Yeah. And winning, well, winning comes down to players yeah. and the majority of the yeah. time they'll, they'll get it done for you. The development processes, which I'm really, I, that's the part of the game that I love. Are there other countries that do it better than what we do here? Uh, Ireland and New Zealand are absolutely outstanding. Are they? Yeah, yeah because they, they've got a certain style they want to play. They ensure the younger players coming through have the skill set to play it, and then they're very good at identi identifying talent and bringing it through. Mm. Like we've got plenty of talented players here, but they haven't been identified and brought through yeah. uh, quick enough. And it's, is that because the international and the super sits well above the club part of it? Like... The thing I love about rugby league and coaching jobs or administrative jobs that I've had is building a club rather than a team and building a club that has spirit and has tradition but also has a pathway, has a vertical pathway of development and the head coach is kind of seeing the wave of talent that's coming through and moulding it into the, into the way that they want it. Whereas an international coach or as even a super coach, you're kind of taking bits of players from everywhere and then having it moulded into a team. Yeah, well, I think Australia rugby was strongest when we only had three super rugby teams and those teams were fairly settled and they ran like club teams. Like, I know I was at the Brumbies for four years 
and we ran that like a club team. You know, the players love the club. But things have changed a little bit with five teams and, and that sort of club mentality at each of those super rugby teams has probably been lost a little bit. And that's the opportunity going forward to build that back up. Like going back to those halcyon days around, they went down to fifth grade or something, sixth grade. They just had all these grades coming through the club. And I guess you came in and you were kept aspiring to play in the higher grade and wear the, the jersey in the main team, where international teams, you're kind of relying on everyone else's development along the way, aren't you? Yeah, no, 100%. And I remember back then with, with Randwick, Bob DeWise saying, you know, if you want to go and play for someone else and play first grade, go. But if you want to be the best, stay here and fight. And, and that drives the competitive spirit. And I think it became too easy for a while in Australian rugby to play professional rugby with five teams. I think now we're getting to a stage where it's becoming more competitive and it'll drive players to come through. Mm. How, do you, how do you compare the mentality of the modern day player with past eras? It's an interesting one, mate. I reckon the thing I find with the, the players today, they're still as competitive as ever, but sometimes you've got to dig a bit deeper to get that out of them because society's created people who... In a lot of ways, what they do at school and what they do in some of the, some of the junior sports is non-competitive, and you just got to you just got to work harder to get well, that out. You're going down a rabbit hole there, aren't you? Because <laughs> there's a lot of talk about how junior sport is coached and rules and different things for it. I mean, it's becoming very sanitised, isn't it? In yeah. a lot of ways. And there's and there's 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 space for everyone, I think, to play sport in in whatever way they want to play. If you want to play non-competitive for recreation and fun, you can do that. But once you get in the high performance where you you know, the end result is, is to be your absolute best, then you've got to have competitions and you've got to have a coaching environment that encourages people to be the best. And of course, at the highest level um, where you are, it's only about winning. That's, yeah. that's all that matters. I mean, your resume, it's either win or loss. That's all that goes on the record book, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's 100% And that's right. the sort of people you need yeah. to attract. Yeah. And, it's not, and it's not for everyone, mate. No. It's not, not for everyone. No. But, you know, and I'm finding in our game, and I, I haven't followed rugby as closely as this around, you know, things like your concussion and the rule changes and the tackling techniques and all this sort of thing. Are the wrong people getting involved in these decision-makings? Oh, I think, you know... What, what has happened is sports science and medicine in large, state, in large part has started running the sport. And I think you go through periods where the sport was probably too unsafe. You know, we allowed too much to go and the, sa and the sport needs to get safer. And, and therefore the equilibrium balance has, has changed too much to that way. And I'm sure we're going to come back to a more We've common... We've gone past it, yeah, though, haven't we? We'll go back to a more commonsensical approach. Like someone said to me 15 years ago, contact sports won't exist for our grandchildren. Eventually someone will take them out of the sporting landscape. I think the history of the world shows that people like gladiators. Like, why is the state of origin so successful in league? Because people love seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, people still love seeing that. There's a place for it. You love the rugby league, don't you? Oh, I love it, mate. Yeah. South Sydney, your team? South Sydney. You don't stray far from Coogee, do you? <laughs> So if you, what have you learned from rugby league that's helped you in the, the rugby world? Oh, well, I think the, the, the standard of coaching in rugby league generally, I reckon, over the last 30 years has really helped rugby. You know, because rugby league has been a, 
a, a fairly settled professional sport and the, and the coaching's been of a high level, we've been able to certainly learn about defence systems and, and more recently, to some detriment, the attack system. Like, I think rugby's actually gone too far down the rugby league side now mm. and we need to get back to... Because rugby's a more instinctive game than, than rugby league because yeah. we don't have the absolute structure of the game. Yeah. Um, but certainly been, been able to learn a lot from the coaching of rugby league. Yeah. I find rugby league is becoming more technical, a little bit like rugby was, particularly in the rucks and the mauling and all that sort of thing. We're, we're experiencing that with our rules as coaches become more adept at slowing the play or controlling the play. So it gets very technical, which I think sometimes leaves the junior or the, the rank and file fan a little bit behind in what's actually happening out there on the field. What game is that they're playing compared to what they grew up with? Because you want that balance between being organised and being able to play instinctively. Yeah. And I think, you know, the great games of rugby league and the great games of rugby union have always got a bit of both. And the teams that are able to, to be strong in both of those areas are the great teams. Yeah. And individual players, are there some that can make the transition, do you think, better than others? Oh, definitely. You know, outside backs in league, if you're, if, you're, if you're a state of origin player in rugby league and you're an outside back, you can definitely make it in rugby. And I think, you know, Matty Rogers, Wendell, Lottie Takiri have all shown that. Yeah, Andrew Walker? Andrew Walker, what a yeah. player he was. Wasn't he? How did you enjoy coaching him? <laughs> He was, he was, he I can say be, that with a laugh. He had, to, he had to be on the job every minute of yeah, the day. Every minute of every day. <laughs> yeah, he was a talent, that's for sure. Staffing, you tend to rely a lot on staff. You like a lot of staff specialist positions. Is that in line with your philosophy on individual coaching? And... I think, I think it's, it's one of the interesting ones. And I've been sort of, it's been going through my head. But, you know, rugby league and rugby union, they're, they're, they're synergetic games, aren't they? You've got to get in the opposition's half quickly and it's through your combinations. But the, the, the sports itself have become more specialised in their coaching. And it's how much you give the specialised coaches and how much you do as a collective. Yeah. You're a good delegator? Uh, become better as I got older, mate. Are there parts of the game you need to have your fingerprints on? Oh, uh, well, I think that... The, the attack and the defence particularly, you know, you've got to make sure that that's, that's, that's working. You know, the set piece is a much more specialised piece of coaching. Yeah. Like, when I coached, we didn't have assistant coaches. Probably had a part-time conditioner. I can't remember what year <laughs> I got my first full-time conditioner. I mean, you, we did it all ourselves. Um, but now it's a very specialised role. I went to America and saw a lot of the NFL franchises and saw what they were doing well before we even tried it out here, but positional coaching and coaching every minute part of the position and the workspace of each player and how that relates to the other players and the relationships they've got to have. It's become um, a very, you know, we've got more and more staff looking after less and less players in that respect in trying to put a team strategy and a team style and to make the players the best that they can be. Yeah, and I think all of that's right, but then you've got to look at it from a player's perspective. Like how many, how many different voices they get. Yeah. And particularly players today who are under pressure to perform. I think one of the things we've got to w worry about in a team environment is to, is to minimise that, that noise for them and to actually maximise the number of simple messages they have. Yeah. 
Do you think uh, it gets too complicated for a lot of the players? Or it, that's part of the anxiety process that they go through? I think it can, mate. I think it can. I think, you know, I remember someone saying the other day, whatever you know, cut it in half and then give it to the players. So how much of the game mentally do you have to help them with, as well as the physical and the skill-wise and all of that? Well, I reckon that's probably the major part now, mate. You know, it's always been a major part of coaching, but I think now even more so it's, it's trying to trying to stop the outside noise. You know, you think about a player now. It's not motivation, is it? No, We're not looking for motivation. No, no they're motivated yeah, to play. We're looking for the ways yeah, to handle. Yeah. You know, they've got social media going. Yeah, I was talking to an NBA coach the other day and they were saying the first five minutes they come into the shed like this, they allow them to check all their social media. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's the way the world well, is. Well, they they've got plenty of coaches outside the main coach, haven't they? There's mum and dad are telling them what to do, families, mates are telling them what to do, and then the world tells them what to do on social media. You know. Then the agents. newspapers tell them yeah, what to do, yeah. so you've got, a, you've got plenty of coaches out there. And it's the same for coaches too. Um, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to lose your job as a coach. You're going to fail at different times and, and lose your spot. But I talk to a lot of young coaches that have gone into a role and at the back end of it, they're failing. It's not because they can't coach and it's not because they don't know the game. It's because of all this other stuff that they need to deal with. You know, boards and sponsors and media and social media and um, pers different personalities, communication skills, staff, relationships... That's the part that beats them. It's not the football or the coaching. It, that's the part that beats them. Yeah, no, that's 100% right. I reckon it's very rarely the tactical, technical side. I think that's almost the easy part of the game. And then having the courage to do something a little bit different with that. Bingo. And then because if you, if you get it wrong, then everyone says, well, he's not doing it how he should be doing it. Yeah. And that then sets messages in the, in the coach's head. And then they're looking for other solutions. I think that's the hardest part, mate. Particularly in our game, look, we, we, the thing I gets me annoyed about coaching is the cookie-cutter approach. That everyone's team looks the same. They play, run the same plays, they run the same shapes, they run the same structures. And it's kind of like, if my team doesn't look like that, people are going to think I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I can see that. And that's where I reckon, you know... You brought in that six again rule and it broke the game up and it, and it cha changed the way teams play. It seemed to, because before that there seemed to be almost like a, a carbon copy of how you had to play under the old, old six tackle without the six again. And that sort of added another variation in the game, which I think has been fantastic. Have you communicated with many of the, the old NRL coaches, like your Bellamy's and Bennett's and those sort of fellas? Uh, Bell, uh, Bellamy I've seen a few times. Wayne, uh, hopefully I'll catch up to in Brisbane. But they're, you know, every time you meet them, mate, and like I met you when I was a young coach coming through, the, the, at the absolute jewels of knowledge that you get from those guys, you never forget. Mm. And the rugby league players that you've admired over the years? that didn't play rugby? Who would you have liked to have seen play rugby? Oh, we had Andrew Johns done, mate. Really? In 2005, yeah. We had him done. He was going to come. Um, in 2005? Yeah. I think you were still around. Was I? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he would have made a hell of a difference. Oh, wow. Slater? Uh, Slater would have been handy. Yeah. Uh, that Cameron Murray would be pretty handy at 12. He's There's still playing. At the moment. You can't yeah. mention that. They'll say you're going to try and pinch him. <laughs> And you're looking forward to this next tenure? 
Uh, I can't wait, mate. Like, it's just this golden opportunity you know, that you think you'd never get again. You know, when you lose the job of your country, you think, you, you think your coaching's finished. So to get it again 18 years or 20 years down the track is just fantastic. And the people that are going to help you most? Ah, uh, the players, mate. Wow. Yeah, it's always the players. Sure. Wish you the best of luck. Thanks, mate. Cheers.